I'm Nicole Monis, author of The Last Chinese Chef. I've been working in and with China for the last 30 years, and in the course of that, I've learned a great deal about Chinese cuisine, especially in writing features for Gourmet Magazine for the last eight years. The Last Chinese Chef is my third novel. It's about a widowed American food writer who goes to China to settle a claim against her husband's estate, and also to write about a half-American, half-Chinese culinary star named Sam Liang. She discovers this incredible world of Chinese cuisine, which has an unexpected effect on her personal struggles to repair her life and get her soul back. Through food, she finds herself being healed. Sam's grandfather, named Liang Wei, wrote a very famous food classic in 1925, which is excerpted throughout the novel and is also called The Last Chinese Chef. This is the prologue from that 1925 food classic, The Last Chinese Chef. It's the story of Liang Wei's life. My name is Liang Wei. I was born in the 19th year of the reign of Guangxu, the year they in the West call 1894, into the lowest rung of society. My family were alley dwellers. Five of us lived in one room, but we had city pride. We were folk of the capital. At least we knew we were better than millions of others. My father was a vendor. He went every day to the great open squares inside the Fuchang Gate to sell glasses of tea to the men who streamed in alongside lines of camels and mule-driven carts. In the heat of the summer and the numbing ice of winter, he went. The caravans bought, or they did not. Too often not. As the years went on, his face became set with the etchings of his fate. By my seventh year, we were starving. The decision was made to sell one of the children. Usually a family would sell a girl, but the girl in our family was the youngest, too young to sell. I said I would go. It was time for me to be a man. At least with this move, I knew I would eat. There was a reason why families as poor as mine sold their children into the restaurant trade. It was slavery, but it came with hot meals, three times a day. And if the young one proved gifted, there was really nothing to stop him from reaching the top. With food, a man could advance on merit alone, without money, lineage, or education. And thus it was for me. Being sold was my life's beginning. A broker resold me into the employ of the palace. Never before was there such a place. Never will there be again. In those years, the last of Sushi's reign, there were five divisions, meat, vegetarian, cereals, which meant rice, buns, and noodles, snacks, and pastries. An incredible variety of food was brought to the palace, not only game and birds and seafood of all description, but also the fruits and vegetables specially chosen at the dedicated farms, each piece plucked from the bottom of the plant, the place closest to the root and thus to life. Tribute also came from local officials all over the empire. From the northwest came redolent hami melons and sweet grapes. From the south, oranges, tangerines, longan, crystal sugar, and lychees. The governor of Shandong sent lotus seeds, dates, dried persimmons, and peanuts. From Liaoning and Manchuria came hawthorn berries and pears. The repertoire of the palace kitchen covered 4,000 dishes. The most important creations, those most favored by the imperial family, sometimes became the lifelong concentration of one celebrated cook. I lived with two other kitchen boys, Peng Changhai and Xie Huangshe, in a small rented room in the Tartar City, a half-hour's walk from the palace. 
In this walled enclave that encased the forbidden city like a larger square lived the Manchus, relatives of the emperor, the lords of the eight banners. They, in turn, supported a whole second world of servants, craftspeople, laborers. We, kitchen assistants in our little brick room with its few small windows, were on the bottom of this generally privileged sector of the city. But at least we were slaves, and not eunuchs. Eunuchs could live in the palace. They had unimaginable power. But any man who still had his three precious, his private parts, had to be out by sunset. And so we came here, to the Tartar city, to our small room. Xie Huangshe was the much younger brother of eunuch Xie, who directed the Empress Dowager's exclusive kitchen, which was called the Western Kitchen. Their family had also been poor, once. Then the eldest Xie brother had sat for the knife and passed into the brilliant, painted world of the Forbidden City. He took control of the kitchens and quickly rose in power. Finally, he brought in his baby brother, Xie Huangshe, but as a slave, not a gelding. Eunuch Xie remained outwardly aloof, but everyone knew he favored the boy. He put him under one of the greatest cooks of the palace, Zhang Yongxiang. Zhang knew no limits. His most famous dish involved hollowing out fat mung bean sprouts with wire and then stuffing them with minced seasoned pork and steaming them to delicate perfection. Xie Huangshe trailed him like a shadow, never so much as lifting his arm without trying to do it like the master. Peng and I went under Tan Juanqing. There has been no accident in my life luckier than this one. It was not only that Lord Tan was the greatest chef of his generation, as he was. It was that he was a man of great accomplishment. All Manchus were pensioned at birth. Lord Tan used to say this had been the downfall of the tribe. But even among them, Tan Juanqing came from an especially wealthy and powerful family. From a young age, he was famous for his intellectual attainments. By 26, he was a member of the Hanlin Academy. It was said he had written the best eight-legged essay in memory. He knew everything about antiquities. He was a sought-after expert on cultural relics. He was an aristocrat. He had money, position. He could have spent his life doing whatever pleased him. And what pleased him was to cook in the palace. Why, I would say. The old Buddha takes only a few bites. It is not her. Ten thousand years to her, of course, but she cares only for little cakes that comfort her and carry her back to other times. It's the princes, Gong, Chun, and Qing, General Director Li Lianying. It is they for whom I cook. No more than a small remark, but it was one that made me see how all things fit together. There was a shadow audience for the palace kitchens, a discriminating, highly appreciative one. What happened to the food every day, after every meal, was no accident. Each time the Empress Dowager entered the hall and ate, she left many dozens of elaborate dishes untouched. We packed these into large lacquer boxes, divided into sections, each box containing a meal for a family of eight, and tied them with hemp. They were carried by eunuchs to the homes of princes and high officials. There they got tips and gifts beyond imagining. When I went out into the city, it was with Tan Juanqing. He liked to select his own provisions. Everyone knew him. He was famous. I heard people ask him, Why not leave the palace? Open your own restaurant. And he would always say there could be no higher calling than cooking for the emperor. He was correct. 
But behind that truth, there was another one, which was that he also cooked for the cognoscenti. The gourmet was important to the chef. Liang Tiao Tuizhou, the art walks on two legs. To have one, you must have the other. I learned from him. Sometimes I saw him come up to a stockpot when he believed no one was looking and add a secret pinch of something from his pocket. We all saw. We all begged him to say what it was, but I was the only one he would tell. Then, of course, I told Peng and Xie. We were brothers. Lord Tan arranged our education. He saw that Peng and Xie and I had gifts. That meant we had to learn to read. You must read the food classics, he said. No Chinese can call himself a chef without doing so. Of course, we would have thrown ourselves off cliffs for him, done anything. So we worked hard for his tutor. We burned candles until daybreak. In this way, the door of words opened. Lord Tan gave us passage to a higher world. There, everything had been recorded, the accumulated truth of all things past. I felt myself leaving my old world, in a way, when I learned to read, certainly leaving the limited world of the immediate, which until then was the only world I'd ever known. I found that everything I needed had been somewhere known and somewhere written. Now that in this paradise of food the hunger of my early years had been satisfied, my appetite was for words. I wanted to know all that men had known before. Yet what I read was not recipes. They were almost never written down. The way of cooking a dish was always secret and exclusive. The only way to learn it was by watching. So in my years of study, what I did was watch Lord Tan. There was the day we prepared a midday meal for the Empress. He was creating his glazed duck. His secret for this dish was full concentration on the primary essence of the food itself. Thus, he used duck fat, rendered from another duck, and duck broth, distilled from yet several others. Duck should taste entirely of duck. Duck should be used in every way. This is what he taught me. It did not matter if four or five ducks were used to make one. This was the pursuit of perfection. And this was his secret. By doubling and tripling the essence of the duck, he was able to reach nong, the rich, heady, concentrated flavor, and one of the seven peaks of flavor and texture. Tan was wiser than any alchemist. His dishes brought him all the glory under heaven. And he did it just as easily from coarse, simple food as from rare delicacies. He often said that the best food was simple and homey. It reminded us of when we were young, or, or felt loved, or were lit up with something we believed in. This was why the Empress Dowager always ordered xiao to, crude little broomcorn cakes made with chestnut flour, osmanthus, and dates. They reminded her of when the imperial family had fled to the northwest during the Boxer Rebellion. Not that those who fled were heroic, he whispered to us, his young charges. They abandoned their capital. But it was over now, it was past, and she could remember what it had been like to be on the road, in the open air, eating rough corn cakes. On that day, Lord Tan paid close attention to the duck. Nong was a quality that could go too far. Timing was all. But Tan was a master who effortlessly synthesized knowledge, he always knew to remove the duck at its most sublime. When it was time for the meal to be served, I went outside and stood in a row with the other apprentices, all of us in our flapping blue robes with white oversleeves. The empress ate in the hall of happiness and longevity. I could barely see it down the long brick walk. 
They were setting tables up in there now. Then came the call. Each of us took a lacquer box on our shoulders and set off in a foot-whispering line. In the hall, we laid out the dishes in places chosen by the geomancers and protocol officials of the Western Kitchen. Everything was according to pattern, order, harmony. There were hot and cold dishes, roast fowl, soups, fish fried and steamed and braised, and all manner of sweet and salty northern-style pastries. From the far south came crabs preserved in wine and fresh cold lychee jelly. There was shark's fin sent by the king of the Philippines and bird's nest from the Strait of Malacca. We set down the plates and withdrew, as always. That day we did not return to the western kitchen, but waited in another hall nearby, empty, wood-dusty, ringing with our footsteps and our chortling jokes. Then we trotted back and packed the food into the dragon-embossed lacquer boxes as usual. We tied them with green and red strings and fixed them to poles. Yet old Lee, the eunuch who always took my pole, walked up to me and stood there. Boy, he said, you know the Hohai district. Of course, sir, I said, for I had grown up there. Then take this to the Gong family palace. Do you know the road? Like my hand. But, honored sir, it is not my place to go there. It is yours. Don't you think I know that? Curse fate. But it's urgent. I am being called back. You'll take it? Yes, honored sir. Before I had even finished speaking, he swung his robes and walked away, his pole still in my hands. I shrugged it on. It settled easily into the notch on my shoulder. Prince Gong's mansion lay near the lake. I knew the spot. I walked toward the back of the palace, for it would be best to leave by the Shenwu gate. Then it was out into the teeming city, my blue and white robes fluttering with importance, the imperial lacquerware bouncing with my steps. People moved out of my way. Crowds parted. I wore the colors of the palace. At the front gate of the Gong Mansion, the pole and boxes were recognized at once, though I was not. "'Honored Lord,' I said to the gatekeeper, "'Master Lee could not carry these boxes today. I am an unworthy apprentice.' The gatekeeper called to someone. A gate to the inner gardens opened, and a beautiful girl came out with a servant. "'Ah! Where's Uncle Lee?' He was detained. "'You came instead?' "'Yes, miss,' I made a reverence. "'She put on an amused look and reached into her purse for coins. "'What's inside?' she said. "'Lord Ton made his glazed duck. "'Ah! Wonderful!' she handed me the coins. "'Pleasure belongs all to me, miss. Thank you.' "'I closed my fist around them. "'I bowed low and long until she and the servant with the food had withdrawn. "'Quickly I slipped out into the street.' I walked down along the lake with its waving fronds until I was under a pool of yellow light beneath the buzz and hiss of a gas lamp. Only then did I unfold my hand to look. Five coins. They looked like... I bit one. Gold. I had never seen a gold coin before, but I knew. I closed my hand tightly again and kept walking, south, away now from the lake. When I reached Huang Chung to return to the palace, I should have turned east. Instead, I turned west, toward my family. I would run like light itself. I would be no more than a moment late. Lord Tan would never know. When I came to my old neighborhood and turned panting around the corner to my own lane, the first thing I saw was my mother, sitting outside the doorway on a stool, scrubbing a cabbage. Zhao Swin, she said slowly, half stumbling with surprise and wonder. She used my milk name, the name they called me as a baby, which I had not heard for a long, long time.
I made an obeisance, but it was stiff. Liang Wei has returned, I said, and then she leapt to throw her arms around me. Ma, I said, the single syllable strangling out of my mouth. She was so small. I was tall and strong. I had not realized how much I had grown. My skin was scrubbed, my cue plaited. I stood holding her in what had for a long time seemed to be only my apprentice clothes, but which now shone in this dark alley as brilliant robes of imperial silk. Come, she said, and pulled me quickly in through the low, stooping doorway. As my eyes adjusted to the dimness of the clay-walled room, my little brother and sister appeared from the shadows, eyes large, barely believing. It was as familiar as a dream. The cracked basin, the faded flowers on the bedding, my mother's dented pans. I was glad my father was not there. I had another father now, Tan Juan Ching. My life was his. I can't stay. I gave Ar Hui and Ar Mo a squeeze. They were thin, not much taller than I remembered them, not flush with good food as I was. Go outside, I told them. Let me talk to Ma. When they had slipped out into the sunlight and dropped the quilted cold-weather robe back down behind them, I took her elbow, opened her hand, and dropped in one of the coins. Do you know what this is? By the gods, she said, yes. She looked up at me. Where did you get it? I earned it. I was as tall as the sky then, a man. I bent over it with her. Is it enough for the winter? Yes, more than. Then I will return with this much every year. Her eyes filled and spilled over with gratitude as she slipped it into a secret pocket she always kept within her clothes. Then she let out a small cry and dropped to grasp me by my knees. Ma, stop, I said. I pulled her up, but my heart swelled with gladness. I must go, I said. Take care of the young ones. I ran back through knotted lanes and beaten dirt intersections where, as a child, I had played and hidden and stolen crisp autumn pears and seed-studded wheat buns from the carts of vendors. It was the world to me then, neither good nor bad, rich nor poor. Old men lounged on marble steps as they always had, bulky wadding inside their socks for warmth. Small children wore clothes handed down, much mended. Old ladies walked in gray cotton, with their hands behind their backs. And here I passed in bright silks, leather on my feet, gold coins gripped tight in my fist. At the Forbidden City I was well known by the guards and passed quickly through the gate, avoiding the grottos and gardens around which were arranged the private halls and apartments of the royal family. I took one of the outer passages back to the kitchen complex. These minor avenues connected an outer web of halls and courtyards where lived relations and forgotten concubines. They did not matter in the palace, yet they could never leave. Finally, I came to the kitchen. I passed the snack section, the pastry section, the meat section. Usually it was in this section that Master Tan worked. Today, though, my instructions were to meet him in another part of the kitchen. He was to give me a different lesson in Nong, by making fermented mung bean curd. It was a difficult dish. Reach the rich, heady top point, and it was a dish so delicious one could not stop eating it. Ferment it too far, even a little, and it was repulsive. This was chow ma dofu, and we were going to make it in the vegetarian section, a place where they generally specialized in brightly nuanced mock meat and fish dishes of bean curd and gluten. I was late, but not by much. If Lord Tan said anything, I would throw myself on the ground. 
Master, I would say, I know, I beg you, forgive this miserable child who is unworthy. I stopped short in the door to the vegetarian section. No one was there. The counters were cleared and the ranges still cooling. Where was my master? He never, never came late. I walked back the way I had come. I passed the rice, bun, and noodle section, where many boys were at work. Some were making thick, hand-cut noodles, and others a fragrant porridge of lotus root and lotus seed. "'Have you seen Lord Tan?' I called, for they were apprentices like me, and between us there were no formalities. "'No, they had not. And where had I been?' "'Nowhere,' I said, and silently touched my finger to the four coins in my pocket. I would tell no one until I saw Pang and Xie. I returned to the meat section. It, too, was quiet. The great black ranges stood in a row, the glow in their fireboxes snuffed down to red embers. The walks were clean and back on their rack. "'Master,' I said, and my voice sounded small and childish in the air. No one. But I felt something. I felt him. I continued walking toward the back room where the meats were hung and where long banks of prep counters were lined with endless bowls in blue and white filled with all manner of sauces and condiments and accent vegetables, all fresh minced to perfect uniformity. Then I noticed something. There were shards scattered on the floor, blue and white. Someone had broken a bowl. I froze. There were his feet. He lay curled around himself, as if still in agony, both hands pressed to his chest. I didn't need to touch him. I didn't need to feel for his pulse. I knew he was dead. I could tell. The light of knowledge had gone out of him. All he knew had escaped into the air. I glanced around frantically as if somehow I could find it and gather it back. It's in books, he would say to me if he were here. Go find it. But he was gone. He was empty and inert. I dropped and kowtowed to him three times. After the third time of pressing my forehead to the cold tile floor, I rose and began a long and agonized wail for help, not stopping until I heard the jumbled footsteps, the eunuchs and the kitchen workers, the scuffing and clattering. Their faces, their eyes, when they stumbled in and saw him, were pale and sick and horror-struck. It was as if civilization itself had died. It was the beginning of the end. All of us knew it somehow, and all together we lowered ourselves to the floor before him. Men and eunuchs crowded into the doorway, ten deep, twenty, and when they saw, they too fell to the ground. The call was going out. I heard a bell clanging. Suddenly I knew from deep inside me that he was going to have one of the greatest funerals the capital had seen in decades— with a banquet lasting three days for his family, his friends and admirers, the princes and the great scholars and the high officials, and I would prepare his glazed duck. To subscribe to The Writer's Block and hear more stories, please visit www.kqed.org slash writersblock. The Writer's Block is produced by KQED. KQED. <laughs>